0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 280. Today is Sunday, the 3rd of June, 2018. And this interview is special because it's with Simone and Malcolm Collins, who are wedded entrepreneurs, authors and worldwide travellers. Working with Malcolm, Simone is the CEO of Travelmax, selling wholesale travel tickets to boutique agencies and providing white-glove travel management services to VIPs. Malcolm is a neuroscientist by training and co-founded with Simone, the art commission marketplace, Art Corgi. Together, they also founded the Pragmatist Foundation and are the authors of The Pragmatist Guide to Life, a best-selling Kindle that elaborates a new way of looking at life. In this podcast, we examine some of the most intriguing tenets of their book, the notion of finding one's objective function and the implications for you and me. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I'm Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the Minter Dialogue. So, today this one is being recorded with birds and bees and buzzes and all, in the garden behind where I live. Um, And it's a very special type of podcast, because unlike most of my recordings, I only do one person, but this one is not just two people, it's a married two people. So this should be fun. So let's say, so I I would like to have you guys, in your own words, describe yourselves, Simone and and, um, Malcolm. Tell us who you are and what you do.
1: Sure. Okay. We are Simone and Malcolm Collins. We call ourselves Malmone. And we are both CEOs of a travel business called Travel Max, former VCs and entrepreneurs, and for Malcolm, a former neuroscientist, uh, that have created something called the Pragmatist Foundation, which has the goal of giving people uh, a tool for being more critical and intentional about the way they live and
2: um, the best-selling book that we wrote uh, and, and we dedicate all the profits from to the foundation hmm. and, and, and then, it's who and the we name, and the name of the book oh the pragmatist guide to life there you go. sorry we forgot um
0: <laughs> in good old marketing fashion no worries so um travel max so tell us about this travel because you guys are obviously also based in in two places where you seem to be always trotting around the world
1: hmm. Yes, we, uh, as of last year, with the money of a group of investors that we convinced to basically give us money to spend two years to find the perfect business to buy and then run, purchased Travelmax, which is a series of companies across Peru and the United States. And And we Spain. Yes, um, that basically helps anything from celebrities to individuals travel inexpensively, but really well
0: well it's another shared thing because in my past I, I owned a travel agency and I was on the board of, are you kidding yep and I was on the board at last minute so got you know, lots of travel stuff and I love to travel and I like the topic of pragmatists so um, I, when I was working at L'Oreal a little story is that you know, it was typically French management and, and one of the things that um, I would hear regularly is was, c'est très pragmatique and the idea is very pragmatic was always a high compliment. It was to be high compliment. And yet I always felt that the version of pragmatism that the French were talking about was very different than the pragmatism that I would hear in America in particular to take the U.S. French translation. So from your perspective, I mean, because obviously you've studied this word a lot more than I have. I've always considered pragma to be a a good way to go about business and life. What's your
2: definition of pragmatism? First before we bias you, I'd love if you could elaborate on the French definition because I haven't heard of this difference.
1: When we're not used to associating French people with pragmatism, <laughs> yes. All
0: right. So, of course, it does exist. Fortunately, so the, the the way it rolls in 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 France is that being pragmatic is doing what you need to do to get the business done, mm. and 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 that can mean, for example, um, if you run a meeting just not worrying about any agenda and just talking about the thing that needs to be talked about because that's the urgency of the morning so an extreme pragmatism with regard to the what is identified as the important topic the where the that that sort of goes is that the meeting might not take 1 hour it might take 3 hours and at the end of the meeting the the french press might say wow, at least we were pragmatic we we took the time to to discuss the important matters at hand.
2: This is very interesting. And I don't think it's too far off from ours. If I was going to say, you know, we talk about um, pragmatism as being a positive thing to say, but recently, especially within politics in the U.S., it's become a very dirty word because pragmatism is very much the opposite of idealism. It's the the opposite of having some ideology you're trying to push. Um, If we were going to define our definition of pragmatism simply, it's the process of having a goal, knowing what you want, And then coming up with a solution to achieve that specific goal that you want. Mm. Um, And and having a well-thought-through goal, not a vague goal. Um, And that's all that we're trying to promote. Is one, helping people determine what they want their goal to be, maybe in life. You know, we move away from the word purpose and we use the word objective function because it allows us to play with it a bit more. Just what are you trying to maximize in your life? Um, And then we focus very heavily on... How can you make yourself the person most likely to achieve that? But when we were writing the book, the alternate title we had working with was The Sociopath's Guide to Life. (laughs) Because there's an element of pragmatism that's very sociopathic. When you completely strip away all the idealism of life, all of the everything else, it's, you know... Okay, I've decided that my goal in life is to sort of uh, maximize the positive emotional state of people in the world. You know, just sort of in a distributed fashion. Um, And then you say, okay, well then let's study how like cults brainwash people. Because that could be the maximal way to maximize happiness in the population.
0: Therefore the sociopath.
2: Therefore, Yes, it's it's, it's saying this is what I want to achieve. I I have a, a philosophical reason for wanting to achieve this. And now... Um, without guiding you towards any specific answer. And now if I strip away all of the, the rules and thought paths that society says, you can't think along those lines, what's actually the best, most efficient way to achieve that thing?
1: And often that means undermining at least some form of political correctness Mm -hmm. because, you know, you may need to kill people to do what you need to do. You may need to disregard your family, abandon friends. And to most people that seems evil, and and to us, we're saying no. It's it's the cost of, of prioritizing what actually matters to you. Mm-hmm. And when you look at many great figure, figures in history, they've done exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. We just don't talk about it because they've achieved something more interesting. Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, I would. I don't know if I would go that far. I love I love how far you push things, Simone. Um, but yes, uh, if if you know that you're in goal, the, the the thing that you need to make sure about, and the thing that our society really does not push people to do, is ensure that they're in goal is actually what they want and actually just by their moral standards right it allows people to just skate by on these vague end goals like i want to achieve i want to be happy i want other people to be happy and i want to achieve some sort of vague form of spiritual Ooh. enlightenment well one
1: of the biggest things that we see is that people just want to look good by society's standards mm-hmm. and that you know that does mean you know being politically correct and fitting in in all the right mm-hmm. ways but we've met so many incredibly successful people who've done that in spades and are so wealthy and so successful and so attractive and so well-traveled and wise. Are and you thinking of another guy right now? They're, <laughs> they're not. They're very lost, uh, if philosophically speaking. And 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 there's. I, I don't. I w- I wouldn't necessarily say that happiness or satisfaction with life has inherent value, uh, but they aren't happy or inherently satisfied. So uh, when
0: I read your book, uh, I loved one of the chapters you had at the beginning, which, uh, or, you know, one of the lines you said at the beginning, which is, do not expect this to be an easy read. This is a a difficult journey, and, and it's a lot of texture, and I did have to reread a number of paragraphs, not because it wasn't well written or anything, but it did make me sit and pause. And it, and if I had to, if or if you had to, Describe the fundamental challenge you're solving for um, is it allowing us or making us have a specific objective to our lives?
1: It would be to, we many people have specific objectives and we don't question that people have very specific bucket lists and life goals. Mm-hmm. Ours is our problem is that those are not ones that they chose themselves. They're mm-hmm. ones that they were exposed to, and they're like, oh, I guess this is what I'm supposed to do. Okay, mm-hmm. here we go. Your
0: parents would like this. Yeah, like this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or, like, you know, I saw this in a magazine, or my favorite book is all about this. And, and I lived that way for a really long time. Um, so we actually started writing the book essentially when Malcolm and I met. And mm-hmm. I was. 24 years old. I was still a virgin. I'd never dated anyone in my life, but I had otherwise a perfect life. I had my 401k and I traveled internationally and I went on all these pilgrimage trips to try to have this deeper understanding of the world and to reach transcendence. And I decided at age 24 that, you know, to be a more well-rounded person, I had to fall in love and have my heart broken. And so... To get that out of the way. Yeah, world. and this was all me. Like, I was... The picture of success. I had friends. I entertained. I was colorful. I was... You I still are. Yeah, but, but very different. Um, like, now I wear all black. And I, I well, cut so, off so, all my so, hair. The, the, the,
2: so, continuous the...
1: Yeah, anyway. So, I, I decided that I, I wanted to achieve this goal to round out this wonderful character I'd built and I created this whole system for dating I had uh, to encourage myself to date because I found it very scary a points-based competitive system that I unleashed upon my office so that you know whoever did you know got to third base on a date they'd get 15 points etc etc I had a a points-based rating system to determine if people were worth a second date it was very elaborate and along this process I met Malcolm and and that's when the book really started for us that's when we started the conversation conversation because he sat across from me and he said, I'm not looking to date. I'm looking for a wife. I expect to find her this fall at Stanford where there's a large pool of pre-vetted candidates. And he basically implied that it wasn't going to be me because I Uh. I wasn't educated enough. I wasn't fancy enough. I wasn't rich enough. I wasn't (laughs) professional enough. Um, But he told me his whole life plan and his philosophy and why he believed what he believed. And I was blown away with that. I instantly fell in love with him. But the scary thing is he then asked me, Okay, so what are you all about? And I said all the things that I had, as we were saying, you know, been exposed to as a, a sort of liberal Silicon Valley young lady. I, I wanted to help others make the world a better place, reach some level of philosophical, spiritual, religious transcendence, um, and and be a general happy person. And when he actually pushed me to to figure out why I wanted those things, I realized not only how how sort of feckless they were, all these, you know, religious trips and my donations to charity, how they really didn't have a lasting impact, Mm -hmm. but also just how superficial and self-masturbatory they were. Mm -hmm. It was about feeling good about myself Mm -hmm. and not actually helping other people, Mm -hmm. not actually about figuring out the mysteries of the universe. It was like, no, I feel so good about Mm -hmm. my trip to that, you know, weird Chinese village to see the priest. And no, I mean, it was, it felt so empty and that my world crashed apart at that Mm -hmm. moment. And it was really... The moment when we we realize just how pretty much everyone who's not defective like Malcolm and who questions these things from the beginning is is probably doing the same thing, right? They may be incredibly successful at achieving a goal, but it's not their goal. To
2: to put this answer another way, so often when people are choosing what they believe about the world and their goals in life, what they first think is, okay, this is the subculture I'm a part of. Mm -hmm. Um, This is the way I want to see myself. And here's my life right now. What beliefs... And what goals in life aren't really going to disrupt my daily pattern that much, Mm -hmm. are are, going to fit well with my basic circumstances in life, Mm -hmm. instead of what do I think is true. Mm -hmm. Truth has become such a matter of convenience Mm -hmm. about fitting with your existing life. Mm -hmm.
1: And a team sport, about which team are you in, and therefore, Mm -hmm. okay, this is what I believe.
0: Yeah, and self fulfilling prophecies, and and then you just sit in your own eco chamber. So, Malcolm, you have to tell us how you came across this. I mean, was this a a revelation, an aha, an epiphany? Or is this, you didn't come out of the womb thinking this way, presumably?
2: No. um, You know, there's this movement right now called positive psychology where people try to take psychological concepts um, and uh, utilize them to be more happy um, or feel more fulfilled. Um, and I found myself coming at positive psychology very early in my life, but from a completely different perspective Um, where positive psychology was about tweaking the, the the science to make it easier to be happy. I just got really obsessed at a young age with brainwashing and cults and how people ended up believing these really weird things Mm -hmm. and receiving, you know, environmental stimuli um, and then processing those environmental stimuli in a way that is very counterintuitive to the way a human would normally process them. Um, And so I just began researching, 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 researching. How can you? And you see this in the book. It's, it's sort of the question is how can you brainwash yourself into mm. being the person who can best achieve your goals? And once you realize that the, the way the human brain works isn't that complicated in this respect, and that you really can brainwash yourself to be happy almost all the time if you wanted to do that, you really can brainwash yourself to be this, this, uh, you know, avatar of justice. Um, you realize. Okay, now that those things aren't that hard to achieve, like when you first learn to masturbate, now that masturbating, you know, at first you do it all day for like a day, and then you're like, I don't want my life to be about masturbating all day. That's not like move my on. thing. Yeah. yeah, move on. Yeah. Um. Once I achieved that, then I really had to think and think, okay, all of these things that I thought were really beyond my reach were really quite trivial to achieve what is it do I really want? Because once they were easy to achieve, they no longer had much value to me. And I realized the only reason I thought they had this mystical sort of out there value is because I had trouble achieving them. Um, And so then I just sort of built a life philosophy around, okay, what do I really want? And that's changed. That's changed constantly over time. Simone has changed that for me, but at least I know that my actions are moving towards a specific goal.
0: When I, in my non neuroscientific uh, side, (laughs) I, I listen to this. I, I hear, oftentimes people get into habits and ruts, and let's say scar tissues and experiences that have marked them, and create fundamental, often limiting beliefs. In 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 the brain, what is going on when you create the objective function that suits you, and you actually find it? Are, are we talking synapses going crazy all the time? Because you're online, you know what you're about. What's happening in the brain? I
2: I think it's actually not so much that this is like a more advanced way of thinking. It's more that when you talk about these scars that form in people's brains, um, sometimes these are actually like literal ongoing trauma. Like if you have trauma over and over and over again over a period of time and you get this sort of feeling of helplessness, it can change the way your brain functions so much it changes the way your brain looks. But then there's other sorts of scars, which are the type of scars most people have. That aren't real scars. They're little things that happened to them when they were younger. And society has taught them that it is okay and acceptable to limit the beliefs and ideas you're willing to consider because of these things. It is acceptable to pity yourselves and be okay with achieving less than your actual potential because you, quote unquote, have an excuse. Um, and I think this problem actually came apart, uh, came up probably because of the psychoanalysis movement, where it was like, oh, it's all your parents' fault. Mm -hmm. You're not successful. Well, it must be something that somebody else did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and not something you did, or something in your childhood that you were never really... But that
1: gave birth to a really disturbing trend that we've seen, which is the shifting of our loci, uh, loci, or however we say it, loci of control. Yeah. So we went from an internal loci of control, which, or yeah, loci, right? Um, Of, okay, I'm responsible for this. Even if someone else hit me with their car, I'm responsible for Mm -hmm. how I react to it, to external, you know, whereas, okay, this person insulted me and now I'm, I'm triggered and I can't go to class because... I'm, I'm so emotionally distraught. It's,
2: it's why did you pull that person out of their car and beat them up? Yeah. It's because they hit my car. That's why I did it. Yeah. Instead of, no, because... I have some, an anger
1: problem. I have yeah. an
2: anger problem that I can fix through these specific steps and yeah. take responsibility for. Yeah. Well, it's
0: very interesting looking at you both, and, and you know as, as we've come to know each other a little bit, it, you have this sense of of a total forthrightness, and, and probably... Also, um, you you hold yourselves accountable, I think, it seems. At some level, is that not fatiguing? Because I think most people are not wired this way. Most people have not gotten on this band path. They're still living your sort of pre-24-year-old Simone life. And it's a... You know, I, I, I fundamentally have always, I still appreciate some of the elements of Ayn Rand's philosophy, which is taking responsibility for everything you're doing. I, I'm more in that camp than I am the one of the external one. Mm-hmm. But at the same level, you know, if you're always on, it's tiring.
1: Oh, no, I, I disagree. So pre pre-pragmatism Simone, pre-24-year-old Simone, she couldn't eat out. She barely left her apartment because um, I had crippling OCD and agoraphobia and, mm. and more or less human phobia, <laughs> which I wouldn't say is I mean, now I've just realized it's an inherent distaste for humans. But All that's right. OK. Um, I've accepted, embraced that. Um, but the it was I lived a life in which I accommodated for my my weaknesses uh-huh. and my my mental defections and it. It, it was, I think, more exhausting to try to accommodate them uh. than to say, you know what? This isn't useful or I'm going to find a different way to channel this.
0: Yeah. So it, liber- it liberated you yeah. by figuring your path. Although, it was there was some trauma presumably getting through from well, the pre to the post? I,
1: it, I, don't, I don't even think so. I mean, I, so I think it's very similar to something else we did about a year ago where because we had to go buy a business and it was in Peru and Miami and we lived in Texas, we just put all our stuff in storage and decided to live out, live out of suitcases for like a year. And we thought, oh God, you know it's going to be so uncomfortable we won't have a home we're just going from Airbnb to Airbnb um but oh my gosh just letting go of all your baggage is so liberating you know I
2: I I want to focus more on your earlier self and sort of what you were talking about there Mm. you know you had your crippling OCD which you really have I mean she still has to measure everything she eats individually and market and everything like that yeah um but she because the the ultra liberal society especially like San Francisco which is sort of the mecca of this Fetishizes disability so much and gives people mm-hmm. special attention and accommodation for them um, it sort of reinforced this behavior for her and made her feel that well she didn 't really have any reason good enough to go outside and talk to people she really didn 't have any reason good enough to sort of learn to integrate with the world in terms of yes, she had friends who came to her house and everything but she didn 't mm-hmm. she lived very much a a uh, a uh, somewhat uh mm. hobbled life she was the person with mental disabilities who was making the best of it yeah. uh, um um but when she realized that you know I can accept these things about myself. I can accept exactly how much mental pain they cause me. And I can accept that that is an amount of mental pain that I'm willing to endure for something that I believe is of higher value than Once
1: you have something that matters more, it changes the whole landscape. She
2: begins to build habits and things begin to change. And you talk about this... Um, uh, is it really hard to always be, you know, saying, you know, not accepting your flaws? And the thing is, that's not really the way it works. Like with her still measuring her food, she knows that's not optimal. She knows it makes people look at her weird, you know, and I know I have my flaws, um, that I could change if I really wanted them through some level of mental pain, through some level of, of hurdles I would have to overcome. Um, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a level that I'm not willing to accept. And in our book, we call this our proclivities. Mm-hmm. Things that you accept are wrong with you.
0: And you're not prepared to pay the price to change.
2: Yeah. yeah. You know, you could be a celebrity who loves your shark tanked mansion and you know that you could better help the poor, which is your objective function, by giving that up. But you're just like, I'm not going to accept a pragmatic lifestyle. I'm not going to accept a perma- an objective function if I don't get this bit of sugar with that pill.
0: Mm-hmm. Alright, So what happens if the world, 7 billion people read your book and come online? What, 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 what uh, does the pragmatist foundation uh, wish if that were to happen? What, what, what world are we living in?
2: The biggest change that needs to happen in the world right now is truth needs to stop being a team sport. That is going to continue to ossify in our society. It's become more and more of a problem recently. Um, And without pragmatism, there really isn't a solution to that. In the past, there were solutions. The solution was, is an assumption that everyone saw the world in the same way. It was everyone, at least within a specific society, is this type of Christian, um, and that means they have this value set. And so when I'm arguing for you know, this social program, I know what value set I'm engaging people on. And that's not the society we live in anymore. Now people have a wide variety of value sets, a wide variety of standards of evidence. You know, that's what level of evidence and what kind of evidence you trust. And we need to change the way we think about these things so as a society we can adapt to this fact of the modern world. And what we try and do is have people, you know, at the beginning of an argument say, okay, if you believe this, like if this is the thing you're trying to maximize was your life, that you believe the government should be trying to maximize. And if these are your standards of evidence, okay, I understand that. Now I can argue with you in a meaningful way. Where instead what's happening in society is um, somebody will argue a point and somebody's like, okay, that point's different than mine. So they're a bad guy. It's become a, I'm right and you're evil they're a bad guy and now I need to find out how to label them a bad guy. Is it that they're racist? Is it that they're sexist? Is it that they're, you know, and so you come up with these ways of not engaging with other ideas. And what we're trying to do is systematize the way people think so they can at least engage with other ideas. And when they find something offensive, know what that offense means to them at, a, at an internal level. Offense is an emotion we experience when something challenges our worldview. So our worldview maybe I'm actually at the top of this social hierarchy And when somebody says, oh, you're not, or I'm actually smart when somebody says, no, you're not. If you have no doubts about your position there, you won't feel offense. You only feel offended when somebody is really challenging your worldview. Where that becomes a bigger problem is where you believe, oh, I believe that, you know, uh, communism or feminism or whatever is right. And somebody says, no, that's wrong. And then you get offended by that. And then you attack them because what that offense means to you internally is that you actually have doubts about whether or not you're right. And it is very important that the things that offend you are the things that you engage with the most.
0: Right, You identify them and, uh, and then at some level hopefully come to peace with them. We were talking before about how the, the notion of debate, a great debater is someone who knows inside out the arguments on the other side has evaluated it, objectively understands where they're coming from. And then once you've done that, you're certainly, I would say in debate, better able, better equipped to argue through their argument. Is that something that resonates with you, Simone?
1: The challenge is, I, I love debates, but what I find is that they usually come down to semantics and, and, and the boundaries. Right. Um, and, and, and that, it, okay, well, it's it's the way that we're defining the word fair. Or it's the way do, we're defining the word race uh-huh. that, that is, is ca- causing the disagreement. And what I wish debates were about instead is, these are the standards of evidence we're going to use. Let's actually look at the facts and come to a real conclusion instead right. of a, oh, this is how I define this word. Right, this notion of truth yeah. again comes yeah. back. And yeah. understanding an offens- a
2: viewpoint that you find offensive. So for example, this is something I've been doing recently. Um, Simone called me. She goes, it looks like you find, you know, radical feminists in sort of the the surf and turf branch of radical feminism offensive. And I was like, you know, I do. That means I need to read more into it. And so I've just been every day for the past couple weeks going through all of their most popular sort of online hangout spots, uh, all the Reddit threads that they commonly post. in, And I really feel like I can put myself in their shoes now and completely understand why they have the worldview they have. Yeah, um, and which, respect
1: it even. I and mean, respect it, yeah. yeah. it's 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 been remarkable to see how his views have changed because he, he can understand their arguments and, and well, he's well taking time.
0: But then back to the, let's say, the original enervement um, where you were... Offended by it, or you felt something within you, then where's the self reflection in that? I mean, how did that come back? So it changes now you've read up about it, you've learned more about it, and even your opinion has changed. How do you go through the part that recognizes oh, that, that there's something that bugged me? Where,
2: where does that work through?
1: It's a habit that we've learned to cultivate. Mm-hmm. So we realized, oh, it was like a conversation we had early in the morning at some point, and we're like, you know what? The weird thing about being offended is it's only when we kind of think it's true. And then we're, oh my God, uh, wait, this, is, this means it's a trigger. Okay, so we need to build this habit that whenever we feel offended, mm-hmm. it's a huge opportunity because it means we might be wrong. And, and we, we want to know when we're wrong mm-hmm. because we want to be better people. We mm-hmm. want to have the best ideas is in our head possible
2: it's about getting closer to the truth it's not again not about teams it's about i'm better now because i have incorporated aspects of a truth that they saw that i wasn't able to see because they are so separated from the communities i engage with on a daily basis but it was
1: all about us recognizing a potentially useful trigger and finding out how we can glean value from it which i think Mm. is at the core of pragmatism it's Mm. what is this and how can i exploit it Mm.
0: It's, it's a, I love I love this idea, of course, in in today 's world, with the concepts of fake news and and political correctness kind of dominating it seems headlines everywhere, this notion is is it possible that there is an absolute truth
2: I think there's closer to you know I, I hate this line because the less wrong movement and we 're not a huge <laughs> fans of the less wrong movement, but there is being less wrong. Um, And I think that when you know you're wrong, when you know you're brainwashed, generally when you think that you know you're brainwashed by someone else, is when you think that any specific cultural movement is 100% right. You know, when you're there and you say, look, the liberals are always getting it right, and all of the fake news is on the conservative side mostly, or at least the vast, vast majority, it means you're not really being intellectually honest in the way you look at things. Because I think as soon as you do, you realize that, Both sides have just as much um, impetus to create fake news and they're creating it at almost equal levels. And this is on any topic. And it's one of the things where we always have trouble um, identifying because people say, "Okay, what side of this argument are you on? Mm -hmm. And we say, well, we, we technically think that this side is closer to the truth. But that doesn't mean that we agree with their methods and that doesn't mean that we don't think that they don't output a huge amount of fake news.
1: Well, and here's another way of looking at it too. I would argue that there is an objective truth, but there are like multiple dimensions of it, right? Mm. Because it depends on your standard of evidence. If your standard Mm, of evidence is the Bible uh, or really the word of God then a lot of your pursuit of truth should be, okay, well, how has you know the Word of God been corrupted through the translations of humans and different mm-hmm. versions of the Bible, and how can I get at the real truth through archaeology and anthropology mm-hmm. and different editions of the Bible and translations, mm-hmm. um, or if it's science... Other
0: forms of evidence. Yeah,
1: exactly. Mm-hmm. Like You have to decide your standard of evidence, so your flavor of reality, your reality of truth, mm-hmm. and then you have to figure out how in this reality, by this rule set, am I going to get closest to the truth, be it the, the scientific consensus or, or 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 what we can get through the scientific method or what we can get through personal experience, which means, okay, I'll have to experience more personally. I'll have to go out and go to a haunted house to determine if I think ghosts are real and sleep there all night and, you know, get there. But whatever it is, you have to first know what is the rule book by which you're playing? And then how can I play by that rule book to get closer to that kernel of truth that lies at its center?
2: I couldn't agree with what she said more. And I love the way you articulate it. Yeah, it's about we don't care what flavor of truth you have. We don't Mm -hmm. care what worldview you have. You know, you choose your guidebook and then you find out what's true by following the rules you set for yourself in that guidebook. So much of what's happening in society today is people decide what they want to be true and then build their guidebook based on that. And that's what the Pragmatism Foundation is trying to change.
0: So as we wind down, the the thought that I have when you talk about these standards of evidence is that that seems like a bias, let's say the Bible. And introducing biases, is is it only just about recognizing your bias? Because as soon as we're subjective, then how can you get an objective truth?
2: So the standards of evidence we use to judge reality, we sort of investigate them further in the book, and we think that people really misunderstand them and misunderstand their implications often. So somebody thinks to be so okay let's say somebody who has a very science minded person right so first the question
0: you for example
2: (laughs) right first the question is is it expert consensus that you agree with you know experts within that scientific field that you use as your primary standard of evidence or is it individual well conducted studies that you view as your standard of evidence Um, and Simone disagrees with me on this she keeps a diary of every study in cognitive psychology she can as it comes out as well as a review of of the method used in that. And I don't think that's practical to do, or I'm too lazy to do it. Um, And so I say, but look, if experts in the field disagree with your sort of journal of studies, um, I'm going to side with the experts in the field on this issue. Um, And so with science, it's even more nuanced. But then it gets even more nuanced than that when you look at anyone who has really advanced science by like a huge leap they can't have either of those standards of evidence. You know, the the archetypal example of this would be Charles Darwin. You know, he's on his journey on the Beagle, in the Galapagos, and he sees something, he observes something, the most non-scientific thing ever, that completely invalidates the entire expert opinion of the scientific community and every experiment ever done, and he changes his worldview based on an anecdote that he personally observed and then decides to investigate that forward and continues to believe that for years in the face of mainstream opinion and so the question is if you want to be a great scientist or if you're a scientific thinker what really is the best standard of evidence for you it's not as clear-cut as we make it out to be as a society and it's not a much again a team sport as we make it out to be
0: Love it. Well, I love your energy, the two of you, and uh, it's great that we had a chance to meet in real, um, listen to some birds and, 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 and to show your flexibility uh, with all the various machinations of my life. Um, I want to close by asking you, what would you like people to do out of this podcast as they're listening? And of course, how can they get your book and any and other else?
2: You got to go to Amazon, search the Pragmatist Guide to Life. We sell it for the lowest price possible because, again, it all goes to charity anyway. So it's like ninety nine cents for the ebook. Get it. We uh, would love you to leave a positive review. That's very important. And 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 no negative reviews. We don't need to hear those opinions. Um, And then uh, 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 find something that offends you in your everyday life and really, really investigate that thing. From the perspective of the community that's offensive to you, research it as if you were one of them, not as if you were somebody trying to find out why it's wrong. And within a few weeks, you may be closer to truth than you are today. And that's a great feeling.
1: I totally agree.
0: All right, so how can, what's the best way to get in touch with you should I want to know more?
1: Email Malcolm, M A L C O L M, at pragmatist.guide.
2: Or you can just email ceo at travelmax.com if you want to buy plane tickets for us or want to use us for your company. So you always got to be plugging that. Of course. <laughs>
1: Absolutely beautiful.
0: Thanks a lot, you guys.
1: Thank you. This has been so fun.
0: Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button, or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Joss Sax's Finger Paint.
3: Oh, fill me with all your colors and need different way to rid me of the gray.